Welcome to the Against the Stream Nashville podcast. In keeping with the Buddha's encouragement to ensure that these teachings are freely offered to all, we do not have any set dues or fees associated with any of our classes or media. In an effort to sustain our ability to do so, we ask that you contribute via our website at againstthestreamnashville.com by clicking the Donate tab, or via the mobile app Venmo by sending a donation to the username at ATS Nashville. Enjoy. So tonight I want to uh, share a little bit about contentment and about the Buddha's journey to awakening and what he was looking for and maybe how we can work with finding contentment in our lives. Hopefully a relevant topic. So about 2,600 years ago, the Buddha made a really tough decision to leave a pretty cushy life of luxury. He was born into a high-class system and really had everything provided for him. He also had a family, and he made a decision to leave that life in search of a deeper sense of spiritual fulfillment. Um, His spiritual quest was hurried along due to a trip that he made into the local village where he saw, they call them the four heavenly messengers. He saw an elderly person, a sick person, and a corpse in the village. And he also saw a spiritual seeker. And seeing these people, the elderly, the sick, the dying, and the spiritual seeker, he had this urgency that awoke in him to find some meaning and fulfillment in his life. Um, They call this, in Pali Sanskrit, this word, this urgency, they call it samvega. Samvega is, sometimes it's defined as spiritual urgency. And I want to read a definition of it. It's the oppressive sense of shock, dismay, and alienation that comes with realizing the futility and meaninglessness of life as it's normally lived, a humble sense of our own complacency and foolishness in having let ourselves live so blindly, and an anxious sense of urgency in trying to find a way out of the meaningless cycle. So it's a little bit dramatic of a definition. (laughs) Uh, But I think the importance of spiritual urgency is that I I feel that many of us have had these moments, these rude awakenings throughout our life where we may be wake up and we realize that we've lost a sense of meaningfulness or purpose in our life, that we're kind of on autopilot, um, or we just notice a general sense of dissatisfaction in areas of our lives. I think for a lot of us, what motivates change is some sense of connecting with how unsatisfied we are, right? And The Buddha, an interesting thing about his teaching is that he doesn't shy away from this dissatisfaction. He is very interested in looking right at it. Uh, One of my favorite quotes from psychotherapist Carl Jung, he said that we don't awaken by imagining figures of light, but by making the darkness conscious, right? So looking at our dissatisfaction can be such a important area of motivation uh, to find more meaning or to find more fulfillment in our lives. And the Buddha had this experience. Um, I think this can even be a little bit shameful to admit. For some of us, we 
recognize dissatisfaction or a sense of meaninglessness in areas of our lives when we really have everything provided for us. So I think there can even be a little bit of conditioning that creates this shame around, I should be fulfilled and happy. I have all of the things, right? I'm better than I was before. I've made a lot of growth, but I still, for some reason, feel and experience a sense of lack, right? And so I think it's important to look at that not as a shameful awareness, but as a positive awareness, that that's what drives us to change. Um, And so I want to read a poem. I don't do this often, but I really love this poem. It's by Mary Oliver. It's called Summer Day. She says, Who made the world? Who made the swan and the black bear? Who made the grasshopper? This grasshopper, I mean, the one that has flung herself out of the grass, the one who is eating sugar out of my hand, who is moving her jaws back and forth instead of up and down, who is gazing around with her enormous and complicated eyes. Now she lifts her pale forearms and thoroughly washes her face. Now she snaps her wings open and floats away. I don't know exactly what a prayer is. I do know how to pay attention, how to fall down into the grass, how to kneel in the grass, how to be idle and blessed, how to stroll through the fields, which is what I've been doing all day. Tell me, what else should I have done? Doesn't everything die at last and too soon? Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? I just feel like that's such a powerful example of finding meaning in such ordinary, simple experiences. You know, and I think she really hits the nail on the head with this idea of Psalm Vega. She says, tell me what it is you want to do with your one wild and precious life. And also she talks about this ordinariness of spiritual awakening that I think the Buddha was really keen on. That awakening isn't some magical event that's over here that we're going to work towards and get to one day, but that Awakening is available in every moment. You know, in Zen Buddhism, they say that there's a sudden awakening, but a gradual cultivation. That the more that we wake up, the more that we find ourselves here in our ordinary moments throughout the day, the more that we're cultivating that awareness. And so she talks about making a decision to dive down into the grass and just pay attention And I love how she says, I do know how to pay attention, how to fall down into the grass, how to kneel in the grass, how to be idle and blessed, how to stroll through the fields, which is what I've been doing all day. Tell me, what else should I have done? I think we have all this conditioning around meaning being in the things that we should be doing, right, outside of our idle time when we're just enjoying a present moment of experience, that we always need to be productive or accomplishing or successful, or we need to show something for our time. You know, we, I always make this kind of reference to this phrase, to make a living. You know, what we're so interested in in our Western world is what we do to make a living. And I think we rarely stop and look at how crazy that idea is that we're trying to make a living when life is free. It's here. You don't have to make it. You don't got to do anything for it. It's just available. 
And it's so simple that it's the easiest thing to overlook. And I think that's what the Buddha was interested in. I think that it's so simple how we get pulled out of just living. And that what we're really interested in is how to live with more intention, you know, to live with more compassion, more of a sense of connection, and with contentment, really. Uh, the Buddha gets a bad rep. I think a lot of kind of misanthropes find their way into Buddhist practice because of his emphasis on human suffering. Uh, he was probably an aversive type of person, the Buddha. He focused on first talking about the problem with the human condition, which is that the problem is that we are living in a fragile existence, that we grow old, we get sick, we die. Sometimes we get what we don't want, and we don't get what we do want a lot of the times, and because of that, we suffer. And so what he was leading up to, though, was, well, how do we find a way to find more contentment when life itself is fragile, when we do grow old and get sick and die? You know, how do we find contentment in the here and now, in this life, when life itself is vulnerable? And the word vulnere, the Latin root of vulnerable, means susceptibility to woundedness. That we're in a world that doesn't provide lasting safety. And it's easy to take that on as a dogma, especially if maybe you're like me. I thought that the Buddha was, they call him the rebel saint. I was pretty impressed by his uh, discoveries that, yeah, life is impermanent, it's fragile, you're going to die. And I kind of like took those on as things to believe in rather than things to actually explore <laughs> with depth and curiosity and compassion. But that's what we're being encouraged to do, is to find contentment in ordinary moments of experience and to learn to take active delight in things, simple things. And what I want to really talk about tonight is how do we learn to embrace what's good in our lives and what gets in the way of us doing that. And anytime we give a talk, we call this a Dharma talk, really the encouragement is to reflect during it and to just hear what resonates, to see what comes up, not to take what I say is the word of the Buddha that you need to abide by, but something to rather reflect on. What is, what helps you to connect with or embrace what's good in your life and what gets in the way of that? So the first reflection I want to do is just to take a moment, you can close your eyes if you want, I want to do a little kind of thought experiment. So just take a moment, and I want you to bring to mind all of the people, places, and things in your life recently that are either minimally or majorly difficult for you. So I want you to actually take some time to reflect on relationships with friends or partners, romantic relationships, work stress, bills, physical health, your energy level, obsessions and preoccupations self-consciousness or insecurities, anything that's been difficult recently in your life.
almost as if you could kind of list those things out. Maybe four or five or six things. And then I want you to bring to mind all of the people, places, and things in your life that are either minimally or majorly good in your life. Relationships with friends or partners, successes, accomplishments you've had, time with family, songs, movies, or shows you've enjoyed recently, vacations or days off, time spent with family, pets that you enjoy. Now, without judgment, asking yourself to reflect on how much of your day do you spend thinking about things that you would like to be different in your life or stressors you need to overcome, minor irritants or situations you want to change. So think about if you had a visual pie chart, about how much of your day do you spend thinking about what's difficult? Minor or major? Kind of getting a percentage. And how much of your day do you spend taking active delight, enjoying people, places, or things that are good? Successes, accomplishments, so on and so forth. And then the last reflection is how much of your day are you unaware of either what's difficult or nor taking active delight, just kind of on autopilot, just getting through the day. So those are the three categories. What's difficult, focusing on what's difficult, focusing on what's good or unaware on autopilot. So I'm just interested to hear, you can open your eyes, what you noticed or what came up, good, bad, or otherwise. What do the percentages look like for you? Anyone want to share? I know I'm asking a lot maybe by asking that. Maybe if one person does it, someone else will. Yeah. Mm. just don't focus much on the negative. And I was also a little surprised on how much autopilot there is during like, my day of work. Right. Like it almost is about the same as the positive. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's interesting. just a lot smaller than I would have thought it was actually reflecting. Yeah, awesome. Yeah. about 65% negative. 65% negative. Anyone else have that experience? There, there are quite a few heads shaking. Yes. <laughs> and yeah, 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 yeah. There's a lot of that too. And you know, I've done this exercise at times, and I've noticed that I was very surprised at times how much I was focused on what was good at times too. 
it's just interesting to see. What else do y'all got? Yeah. I noticed in a lot of things, you know, when you said like visualize lists, a lot of them in like the positive and negative have to do with the same thing mm. a lot of the time. Like if I'm at work and I'm stressed out about what's going on at work, but then, you know, something funny happens with a coworker or like something that you can appreciate in yeah. the day. Or like um, I was telling you earlier, my boyfriend just left for China. So I'm like, oh, he's gone. I miss him. But he's awesome. Right. <laughs> so it's kind of yeah yeah it's interesting to see that they're like the same same things in different lists there what's good what's difficult are often the same thing yeah different aspects like Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I'm finding enjoyment in those things. I, yeah. That also that reflection of uh, the time, like this is going to be unpleasant for a while. It's maybe like looming and then the minor things, noticing the variance and intensity. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I noticed that about my, my reflection too is that a lot of the positives have been things that I've like built or worked for that have like I almost kind of take for granted. I hate, hate to say that, but like I just don't remember to recognize them as often because they've just been there. And the other things are maybe like more situational or Uh-huh. Right. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So the minor irritants build up, I think, a lot of the time, or they're uh, something that maybe we notice quite often. Um, So another reflection, just in general for the group, what do you think for those of us that maybe notice they don't spend as much time acknowledging or enjoying the good, what do you think gets in the way of that? What do you think is the, you know, why, why does that happen? Without judgment. I think at times it's the flow that you're fueled by the worry and the negativity. Yeah, fueled by it. You feel like it's been keeping you going. Yeah, it's like that driving of, well, all of these things are going bad. If I can just get through that, right, then, yeah. You, know, you try and focus on, on the good, and you almost feel like you're doing a disservice to the bad. Mm. You're so locked into mm-hmm. Yeah. I've noticed in the past. Myself and in the Dharma, and so I'm having more pleasant 
moments. Mm. Yesterday I had a pleasant day all day. And about 10.30 at night I thought, how can I make this better? It is not good. We've got to do more. It's like, oh, there's that addict in me. I'm having this pleasant stuff, but it's got to get better. Right, yeah, yeah. Got, we can stay up till 4 in the morning. You know, what else can we do? Yeah. You know, so I, I had all this happiness and I acknowledged it, but it still wasn't good enough. Right, and yeah. 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 I think we get so frustrated by like the little things that bother us in like, some soft ways. Um, I was running a little bit late for work this morning and I got stopped in a red light um, and it was really hot outside and the AC in my car is broken. I was like, this sucks. Um, that I'm objectively like, sucks, by the way. You can have that one. Yeah. <laughs> but then I was like, you know what? Look around, everything's fine. It's blue sky, like, it's fine. Mm. They're not going to care for me that late for work. Not really a big deal, whatever. So just like just short little things like I wrote something out. It was like stoplight, heat of day, all is cold. Like everything is fine. Like, mm. It's going to be all right. Right. Even though these little things are bothering. Yeah. 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 It's a great reflection. I, say, I put a lot of things I think into like autopilot-ish, mm-hmm. um, mainly because. Um, I'm afraid of, generally I have a negative bias, so like, I can at least like, kind of detach myself from it, I can avoid it going into the negative mm, mm-hmm. but the, a lot of the things that were neg- my negative list easily could have been in the positive list if I had taken myself out of where I could have been. Sure, yeah, yeah, that autopilot's a huge category, I think, too. Um, so I wanted to share this. It's an interesting reflection. We'll talk a little bit more about it at the end, too. Um, you know, the Buddha's teachings really center around finding contentment through it's kind of three things. Presence, awareness. So you can be present but not be aware. <laughs> like a black lab is very present but not very aware, right? Presence, awareness, and acceptance. When we're checked out, when we're unaware, when we're not here, when we're resisting our present experience, the Buddha says that's, those are the moments when we often suffer. And so uh, I want to look at these kind of three areas and we can talk about them together. Um, the first is presence. And presence is making a commitment to be here. Um, it's an interesting dilemma of the human experience that we don't naturally, organically show up here. We have a mind that has a mind of its own. We have a mind that's very conditioned and driven by productivity. I call it the to-do mind. Uh, you may notice the to-do mind comes up during meditation and tells you all the things you have to do next week or the things you forgot to do last week. That's the to-do mind. Uh, The to-do mind kind of rebels against being here, and it's not your fault. We can't force ourselves into the present, but we can set an intention, and this is really where the Buddha encouraged us to practice mindfulness, is to set an intention like we did at the beginning of the meditation, to put aside for a period of time our desire and discontent for the world, all of the plans we want to make, all of the things we want to make different, all of the things that we wish were different in our lives. To give ourselves time to just be present. Um, 
And taking that time requires that we slow down, you know, that we tune in. That's another thing. I, do a, I did a workshop yesterday <clears throat> at a treatment center, and it, a lot of the day was centered around relational mindfulness. And what people kept checking in and talking about was how during the interactive exercises, how easy it was to just check out. You know, and when I was giving them instructions to really listen and to try to uh, recount and remember the emotion of what was being said and the specifics and the details, people were noticing just how often they got lost. And they felt bad about that, of course, but it's not personal. It's just what the mind does. I think I've heard that some Harvard psychology study said, I believe that 43% of our day we're thinking about something that's not happening right now. They call that representational thinking. Thinking about moments that represent a place in time and space that's not actually here. And it is a little bit, not to be too you know, abstract, but I do feel like it's very important to notice that there is no other time in place. You know, it's a trick or it's an illusion that the mind creates, that there's a future moment, that there was a past moment. You know, the past moment, even what we recount from our past is very limited. And they've done a lot of research on this to our uh, memory, our explicit memory, of our ability to recall specifics. Right? They've done this in eyewitness testimony. It's why eyewitness testimony is one of the least valid forms of testimony in the court of law, is because people don't remember well. <laughs> so even what I remember about the past is largely flawed, and what I predict about the future, we all know that, is uh, not often accurate. Uh, my favorite quote, Mark Twain said, the worst moments in my life never came true. Right? All of the worst case scenarios we create for ourselves. And so there's a lot of value in presence. And there's a lot of effort that it takes and uh, just commitment to the present. Um, and so it's part of what we're doing here. In a very, very simple way, we create a community around times and places during the week that you can just make a commitment to be present. When you walk in that door, you invite yourself to put aside the past and the future just for a little bit. And that's so good, I feel like, for the nervous system to get that break to just come and to sit, to sit with community. The problem with the mind is that the mind is so urgent and it's so compelling. The mind is telling a story about you and your life and what is going to happen to you. And so it's really hard to convince ourselves that we can stop thinking about that for a little bit, to set aside our desire and discontent. You know, that's not the whole story. We definitely need to address things in our lives so we can't just keep putting them aside and putting them aside. But the Buddha really says, especially early on at the beginning of our meditation practice, we really want to try to develop that commitment. Don't think about the uh, you know, partner or the dating that, you know, the date you went on last night or the raise you didn't get last week or what you're going to say to your boss tomorrow. Just, just for now. We have to learn how to break our addiction to the thoughts. They're, they're so urgent that we just think them all the time. Think, 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 think. Probably about 10% of the time I'm planning, it's actually constructive. 
right? I go and run it every scenario of what I'm going to say to my boss. Well, if he says this, I'll say this. Well, if she says this, then I'll do that. And then, they, they, then what if they say this? Then I'm going to do that, right? And then we're just sitting around obsessing and worrying and ruminating. The Buddha calls this papancha. Papancha is just this discursive thinking. The mind just builds on itself. Like a comic strip where you see a thought bubble and then another thought bubble. It's like we've got like 80,000 of those just hovering above our head. And so presence is just kind of a commitment for a period of time to put aside that stuff. We can do this in very simple ways. Sure, having a daily meditation practice. All right, 30 minutes. 20 minutes, 15 minutes, I'm not going to do the to-do mind. I'm going to do the sitting here being aware of how much my to-do mind's coming up. <laughs> you know, or I'm going to go on a walk with my dog and I'm not going to bring my, you know, iPhone and listen to music and podcasts and talk to a million people. I'm just going to walk and enjoy that. <clears throat> so again, this is one of those things that I always say that is so easy it's so simple that we overlook it. I do all the time. Um, another aspect of presence, developing presence, is uh, living a life with more simplicity. And this is a big characteristic in the Buddha's Eightfold Path, is the intention of renunciation. So renunciation is kind of a dirty word. Like when I hear renunciation, I think, oh, what am I going to have to give up, right? Uh, but there's a reason behind all of the Buddhist teachings. And I like looking at the intention behind giving up or living a life with more simplicity is that if all of these things in my life are subject to change, as the Buddha says, if everything's constantly in flux and changing, the more things you have, the more change you have. The more change you have the more you usually feel out of control. <laughs> so the more simple your life, still things change, but you don't get so overwhelmed by it. So learning how to live with more simplicity, looking at what's taking up too much time and space, what is detracting from my presence. You know, Not moralistically, this is where our Western mind gets in here and says, I'm a bad Buddhist because I do this thing, or I, you know... I don't know, use this social media app or I'm, I wasn't present at all today or whatever it may be. We get moral about this, but the important part is just looking at what's taking up time and space that doesn't need to be and how can we let go of that. What we usually find, if you reflect on your experience, anytime you've given up something that wasn't serving you, usually it's initially very hard. Uh, something that that thing usually filled a void or a place for you that you relied on. And so when you let it go, that kind of vacuum hole in your experience is like, feed me something else, right? You experience craving or restlessness or agitation. And often, though, if, if I reflect on those times in my life when I've given up something that wasn't serving me, uh, I usually realize that I experience a lot of joy they call this the joy of renunciation. And being able to not have to, uh, you know, not have to be distracted by that activity or that person, place, or thing. Right? Being able to be without, uh, being able to be with simplicity means that we live with a lot more freedom a lot of the time. The Buddha calls this the joy of renunciation. 
And when we're talking about feeling tone, they call this unworldly pleasant feeling. The feelings, the pleasant feelings that come from spiritual practice. From, I always say that self-esteem is built by doing esteemable acts. So if you want to feel good, you got to do things you feel good about. So we've got to look at the things that we don't necessarily feel great about in our lives and get rid of those things. And when we get rid of those things, it frees up space. It also helps us to feel the joy of renunciation. I like to say that because we usually, when you tell me I have to give up something, I'm just like, oh man, right? I don't want to do that. But I, I got to remember that usually after that first initial phase, there's some boost of pleasant feelings that I experience. Uh, presence also means learning how to show up for present, pleasant moments, uh, like in the Mary Oliver poem, being able to show up. Uh, for this simple grasshopper, right, that she wrote this whole poem about. Being able to show up, we miss, I think, so many opportunities for what is good or what's good enough in our present experience. So that's presence. Presence helps us to find contentment. Awareness also helps us to find contentment. So being present, but also being aware. Being present and being uh, interested in what's happening as it's happening. Interest is such an important part of the Buddha's teaching. Investigation, they call this Dhamma Vichaya, looking into how things are right now. Uh, awareness or mindfulness really helps us to develop insight. So as I show up in each moment and I'm aware and observing what's happening, uh, I develop insight, which is the capacity by definition to gain an accurate and deep intuitive understanding of what we're experiencing. So and a capacity to gain an accurate and deep intuitive understanding. The more moments that we show up for with awareness, the more insight we develop. Right? We get to know how our mind reacts in certain situations. We get to know how we, our normal habits play out. We get to know our strengths and say, man, you're really good at that. You killed that. You did a great job. Right? It's not all bad. We get to know. But mindfulness is not always pleasant. I always say that um, mindfulness isn't always good news, but it's always good information. So sometimes what I'm aware of is quite unpleasant. I notice how neurotic I am, right? how controlling I can be, how relentlessly negative I can be. You know, we notice our shortcomings or we notice these aspects of our personalities that annoy us and probably annoy other people too. <laughs> and we all have them, but awareness is the stepping stone for insight. Insight's the stepping stone for change. So by being more aware, uh, we can bring mindfulness into each moment and change how we relate to the moment. And that's where we find our contentment. So I'll say it this way, that happiness, from a Buddhist perspective, doesn't depend on the conditions you're in, but how you relate to them. Mindfulness gives you more of an ability to relate. Uh, Viktor Frankl says in Man's Search for Meaning that between a stimulus and your response, between anything that affects you and your reaction to it, there's a space. And in that space lies the power to choose your response, and in your choice lies your freedom. Mindfulness gives you more space and more choice. Awareness gives us more space, more understanding, and more choice. And so this is really the master key to contentment in a lot of ways. Uh, also, 
One of the benefits of awareness is that we have a lot of distorted perceptions around where happiness is and how to find it. Um, two things that maybe are relatable that I've been aware of that my mind thinks in two ways that cause a lot of dissatisfaction. One is what I call the if-onlys. So the if-onlys are if only X then Y. If only I had this partner then I'd be happy. If only I got this job then I'd have enough money. If I had enough money then I could pay my bills. If I could pay my bills then I wouldn't have to worry anymore. If I didn't have to worry anymore then I'd be happy. So the if-onlys destroy our happiness because happiness again is not about the things that we get, those things are fine, those things are good, but it's our relationship to those things. And so uh, the if-onlys, I think, destroy a lot of happiness. Also, the I'd-rather-bees, which are very similar to the if-onlys. I'd-rather-bees are I'd-rather-be somewhere else with someone else doing something else. So I'd-rather-bees is this kind of dissatisfaction or boredom that we experience a lot of the time. Yeah, this is fine. The meditation group was cool. I learned a little bit. All right, but I'd rather be watching The Handmaid's Tale tonight. Let's be honest. I'd rather be eating with some friends. I'd rather be doing a lot of things. And so, again, it doesn't matter whether you come here or watch The Handmaid's Tale or whatever. It's just in that attitude of mind that we're able to bring awareness to that restlessness and dissatisfaction, the boredom. In order to find contentment, we have to find contentment in ordinary, mundane experiences. It's the opposite, someone mentioned addiction earlier, it's the opposite of wanting intensity or addiction. You know, I remember being a kid and like going to parties and I would just uh, be looking forward to it so much, you know, like I'm going to meet all these girls there, I'm going to throw down, there's going to be music there, it's going to be awesome. And I wanted to have this like amazing night. Right? And it would always be just less than what I wanted. And every once in a while, like maybe a couple times, I got that experience. It was all the conditions lined up. And every other time I was just chasing that one night. You know, and I think we do that a lot of times. We go eat somewhere and we have a great meal with great friends. And it's like, oh, that's my favorite restaurant. I'm going to go back there. You go back there. It's like the food isn't as good, the company's not as good. We try to recreate experiences. And so in order to find contentment, we have to learn how to be more okay with just good enough experiences. And right now is not great, it's not the best, it's not the worst, it's okay, it's fine, it's good. There's maybe some contentment in that. So presence, awareness, and last, probably most important, I won't spend too much time on, is acceptance. <clears throat> acceptance uh, is a very vague, abstract term. When you tell me, hey Andrew, do you value practicing acceptance? I would say, yep, I love that. I'm all on board with acceptance. But it's hard to practice acceptance. Acceptance means being with things the way that they are. You know, and learning how to practice in Buddhism, we call this equanimity, which is an ability to be with our present experience without suppressing or pushing away the unpleasant aspects of it and without obsessing, craving, or clinging to the pleasant aspects of it. So easier said than done. How do we develop acceptance? Acceptance is a uh, practice of sitting still, of being aware over and over and over again. The more we're present, the more we're aware, the more we'll develop acceptance. 
Um, the Buddha said that really what we're trying to develop, I think if there is one goal of the Buddha's path, is this goal of equanimity, an ability to be with our conditions in our lives without having to fix, change, or control them. It doesn't mean we don't influence them. It doesn't mean we don't act skillfully. But it means that we're able to sit with our discomfort, to fully enjoy the pleasant moments without attaching or clinging or craving or holding on to them. Um, So these are just some thoughts on what the Buddha said about contentment. Um, And we've got plenty of time. We've got about 10 minutes to share. If you guys have some thoughts, questions, comments. Um, I always like to say that